Good morning, people of God. Four Corners Church, what a joy to gather. Uh, we've, we have sang a lot of hallelujahs this morning. We started that way. We've just now ended that way before the sermon. It just, uh, it's what, what an incredible thing to be going through Exodus, to be seeing Yahweh in action as he saves his people, as he rescues his people, and to be singing praise Yahweh here in Hebrew as a congregation over and over again. There are a lot of songs that have the word hallelujah, and we've talked to our kids about this, that we don't just say hallelujah flippantly in the same way we don't say, oh my God. Uh, It's the same thing. It's Hebrew. So to say hallelujah in, in the right way, and that's what we've been doing this morning, not taking the Lord's name in vain, but singing his praises. So what a blessing. If you would go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 19, verses 16 to 25. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 25. Just to give a mini report to all of you ladies. You're wondering why, uh, well, you know why, but uh, your husbands have, for many of you, been gone all weekend and haven't been there to... uh, Help carry the load, haven't been there for bedtime and bath time and cereal time and whatever else. Uh, They haven't been there to help out on Saturday. And so I just want to give a little mini report of all uh, that we have done, or at least just generally speaking. We had a great time together uh, this past weekend as men, uh, just fellowshipping, studying, uh, discussing God's Word. It, it, It really is so sharpening. And I would just I would just say to you, if uh, you're a lady here and you know, maybe you discouraged your husband from going or uh, you did not encourage your husband from going, I'm not throwing flaming darts at you or anything like that, but I would just say to, to rethink that uh, because the Lord, he's changing hearts and he was doing that this weekend and, and what you will get out of your husband, practically speaking, will be multiplied uh, so many times over. Uh, by the Lord's work in his heart. One of the things we talked about uh, this weekend was walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit is the only hope we have of being good husbands. That's it. No technique, no lifestyle changes. Uh, those things are great, but really being filled with the Spirit is our only hope. And, and we talked about that, among other things. And uh, it was great last night to hear some of the brothers share what God is doing in their lives. We have a corporate share at the end of the retreat. It's always a wonderful time. We circle up as a whole group, and uh, guys are open and vulnerable. They confess sin just in front of everyone. It, it's, it's such a blessing. It's such a uniting force, and we've done that uh, for the last five years as we've gone, and we'll continue to do it. It, it is uh, so helpful to one another. And I want to ask all of you wives on the back end, as we've come off of this retreat, to hold us to it to hold us to the things that we have learned, to the things that we have been encouraged in, to hold us to it, to help us love and lead. Help us carry out the work that God has called us to, to help us stay the course in obeying God's commands, in submitting to Christ as our Lord, and in hoping in Christ. One of the things we talked about was hopelessness and how Satan tempts us to be hopeless as husbands or hopeless in our marriages and how with the Lord there is great hope, that we as Christians are a hopeful bunch. And so help us, wives, encourage us, 
in submitting to Christ, in hoping in Christ, and in modeling out Christ, in imitating Christ as we love and lead. You know, the wife is called in Genesis 2 a helper to her husband, a helper fit for him. And I just want to remind all of the wives, you are our helpers. And maybe when you think about being our helper, you think, well, maybe I'll iron his shirt for him before he goes to work, or you have dishes on that list, or laundry, or this or that with the kids, or whatever else it is. But this is the thing to consider, is that we need help spiritually. That the Lord hasn't just put wives in the lives of their husbands to carry out these various things, but to be a spiritual help to us, to encourage us. Uh, Wives see our sin better than anyone else. They know the real you. My wife knows the real me. And they have the ability to penetrate into the crevices of our hearts, those hidden places. They see us in a way that no one else does. So please, wives, help us. Uh, we have, you have as great a responsibility coming out of this retreat as the men do in this partnership that we have in serving our Lord and glorifying God. That's what it's about. Wifing and husbanding is for the glory of God. It's all about Him. We are on mission together in our marriages to help one another to do just that, to bring glory to God. So we've been going through Exodus for about a year now, and we have finally come to Mount Sinai, this literal mountain peak passage in the middle of the book, really right in the middle. This is the place where God will deliver his law. This is where he enters into covenant with Israel as a nation. And today we come to the passage right before the Ten Commandments. So Uh, When we pick up next time, we'll be right there at the beginning, the prologue, a little preamble to the Ten Commandments, jumping right in. So we come to the passage right before that. And one of the things I love about Exodus, and one of the reasons that I chose this as the book to go through after Romans, is that there are just so many biblically significant mountains in the book of Exodus. So many, and also so many memorable passages. So many passages that even if you haven't grown up in church, even if you weren't, weren't really aware of much of uh, what the Bible teaches, you would at least recognize these. The burning bush, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the manna from heaven. And now God's people meeting with him at Mount Sinai, another one of these great, well-known passages in Exodus. It just has so much for us as we understand who God is and who we are in relation to him. Today, we come to the latter part of chapter 19, and if last week was preparing for God's presence, this week is experiencing God's presence. So last week was preparation. This week is the experience itself. In last week's passage, verses 1 to 15, the people prepare to meet God. And as we discussed there, this involves confirmation and consecration. They are confirmed in their covenant relationship to God. And we saw that this included a call and a commitment that the Lord calls them, and he calls them by first reminding them of what he's done. And we talked about how the indicative comes before the imperative. God always begins with what he has done for us. He doesn't command us and instruct us out of a vacuum. He begins by telling us what he has done. 
in saving his people. And then it's out of that, that love and grace that he has demonstrated to us, that we then in great gratitude love him by obeying his word. And we saw that last week with God's call. He calls them to obey him. Says that they will be a treasured possession. That they will be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And the people receive that message from Yahweh through Moses. And they say, yes, we will do it. And we talked last week. We know that Israel will go on to fail in so many ways. But we're not meant to import all of that into that passage. What we're meant to see there is the binding of the covenant relationship. God extends the covenant invitation and the people collectively embrace it. They say, yes, all that you've said we will do. So we had the call and the commitment as part of this confirmation of the covenant. And then we looked at the consecration. The people are consecrated as they prepare to meet this holy God. And we looked at their washing and their distancing from the mountain and their abstaining. The washing, of course, of the clothes meant to symbolize the washing of the heart. They clean their clothes. They scrub those clothes as a picture of the confession of the heart, the cleanness of heart with which God's people must approach him. Well, today, in the latter part of chapter 19, the people meet with God. And so the title for the sermon this morning is God Comes Down. God Comes Down. And this is the language used in the passage. This is the reason that I've chosen this language is because it's right here in the passage. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The Lord had descended on it. He had come down upon it in fire. And then verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. So God comes down. And as I said last week, we know that God is present everywhere, right? So we're not talking about some uh, pagan localized deity, some pagan deity among many others. God is everywhere. And the profound nature of God's being is communicated at the burning bush when the Lord says, I am who I am. I shall be who I shall be. God simply is. And we know that the name Yahweh itself can be traced back to he shall be. He is. God is. So we know that God is everywhere. God is. He is omnipresent. And as we've seen repeatedly in Exodus, we know that God has been present with his people all along. So there hasn't been a moment that God hasn't been with his people. And, and we know that when we see him send Moses. We know that when we see the plagues and the parting of the sea and especially the cloud. But what we need to recognize is that for four centuries, God was present with his people in their oppression, in their slavery, in their suffering. In all of that time, God never left his people. Remember what Jacob says when he comes to Egypt. He says that God had been his shepherd all along. That God had shepherded him through his life. Well, what's interesting is when, when Joseph leaves at 17 years old all the way 
to the age of 30 and beyond, the time that Jacob finally comes to Egypt, we don't get any, anything in the text that tells us that the Lord was communicating with Jacob. Just silence from heaven. All these interactions between God and Jacob, and then all these things begin to happen in Jacob's life. He doesn't know where Joseph is. He thinks Joseph's dead. He doesn't know what God is doing behind the scenes. And yet in all of that silence, God is there. God is shepherding his people. And that's the way it is in our lives as well. God is present. So yes, God is omnipresent. Yes, God never leaves his people. These things are true. But what we have here in this passage is unique. God is coming down, as it were, to enter into covenant with Israel. This is a special moment of meeting between Yahweh and his people. One of the few most significant moments in all of the Bible. Here we are, Exodus 19. God meeting with his people. So if you would stand with me. As we read God's word together. And I am going to go back to 19 verse 1. I want you to see the lead up, the preparation. We talked about this last week, but I want to read those first 15 verses as preparation and set up for verses 16 to 25, which is where we will be today. So this is the word of God. This is the word of our heavenly Father, for our growth, sanctification, for our building up, for our comfort, for our joy. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So there we see the Lord reminding his people first of what he has done. And then verse 5, Now therefore... Out of that, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. 
Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And then for our passage for today, beginning in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. There haven't been many times in my life when I have trembled. Probably the same for you. But we know what that is like. Verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. Like at Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham looked over the valley. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people. When God shows up, there's warning. Warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. You can go ahead and be seated. And you see there that our very next passage is the Ten Commandments. As the people have been prepared and now go out to meet the Lord. So let's pray. Ask that God would prepare our hearts more than they've already been prepared. And that he would work in us for his glory, for our spiritual good, to his praise. Let's pray. Father. We are so blessed, honored to come into your presence as a local church. Lord, we know that you are present here with us this morning. What amazing truths to consider as we think about your presence here with over two million Israelites. And you are present with us so intimately right now. And Lord, there is no trembling There is great rejoicing. There is great proximity. There is great and abundant access and boldness in our hearts. Lord, we praise you that we are here in your presence now. Father, we ask that your spirit would guide this sermon. That your spirit would, as Adam prayed earlier specifically, very, very specifically work in every single heart. Lord, we pray for conversions. We pray that you would say, let there be light in individual hearts. 
We pray for the healing of marriages. We pray that the men who have returned from the retreat would be true to our resolve in Christ, filled with the Spirit, true to our commitment, as we see here, the commitment of the Israelites, true to our commitment to you to walk in your ways, to turn away from sin, the sin that so easily besets us and ensnares us, that we would flee from sexual immorality, that we would love our wives as Christ loved the church, that we would shepherd our children, not provoking them to anger, but raising them up, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, diligently teaching them. Father, that we would be self-controlled men and gentle men and patient men, that we would be holy as you are holy, that we would love your word and hold fast to the truth, that we would teach our families, that we would disciple our wives and our children with all humility and gentleness, not in a patronizing, chest-beating, domineering, foolish, fleshy way, but in a humble confessing, gentle way, recognizing our own inabilities and our own unworthiness to have such a role. Father, we praise you for this time to be instructed from Exodus, and we ask that your Spirit would bring these words near to our hearts and into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to look at two things, and you'll see those up on the screen. Two things. First, we have the awesome scene, verses 16 to 20, and then verses 21 to 25, the alarming stipulations. And it's not so much that the stipulations themselves are alarming, it is that the stipulations come with alarms, lots of alarm bells. So the awesome scene and the alarming Stipulation. So let's look first at the awesome scene. And for that, we're going to return to verses 16 to 20. So let's put the spotlight there, really take these words in. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Incredible scene. Can't even imagine. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Many of you probably know Sharon Sellers. I don't want to embarrass her. Try not to mention people's names during sermons, but uh, many of you probably know her. She is the wife of Walt Sellers, one of our elders. Well, Sharon, a former literature professor and a literature teacher now, is famous for holding all of us accountable on how we use our words. So if you've been here for any time at all, you know that uh, she is good at that. 
She is good at keeping us straight in how we use our words. And one of her pet peeves, or I don't mean to trivialize it, one of her concerns is when people misuse the word awesome. Uh, She has definitely, uh, I I, I tend to text the word perfect a lot. Uh, Let's meet it too. All right, perfect. And she has recently uh, really helped me to see that that is likewise very foolish. So, So no more awesome and no more perfect. But this is one of her pet peeves, using the word, misusing the word awesome. And we all recognize, if we think about it, how much this word gets tossed around and misused in our daily speech. I mean, maybe you've been guilty of it even this morning. Even as you've come in, in your speaking and in your texting, you've just been throwing around the word awesome. And Sharon's concern, if I understand it correctly, is that we lose the effect of the word when we misuse it. We use We lose the ability to use the word rightly and to feel the weight of its import when we misuse it or toss it around or use it incorrectly. Well, today, and I know Sharon would agree, we most certainly need to pull out this word. We've got to pull this word out. And maybe for you, it's just a kind of bland point there because of this very thing. You yourself have misused this word so much that it's become zapped of any meaning, drained of any significance. But today we most certainly must use this word. It becomes exceedingly fitting. What we are reading here is nothing less than awesome. Really, there's no other word that will do. So we have to go with awesome. This is an awesome scene. And of course, it is because the people are meeting God. The God. Not a God. This is just not not just another one in the string of gods. I mean, you can even see in the ancient among the ancient Greeks, anytime there's sort of an encounter with Apollo or Zeus or, or Hermes or any of these gods or, or the goddesses, that there, there is this profound sort of significance. But we're not talking about that silliness. We're not talking about one of many gods conceived in a pantheon. We are talking about the God, the only God, the author and creator of everything that exists, not just what we see, but of the angels whom we can't see. The angels, one of whom would cause us all to fall out of our seats on the floor if it were to show up here this morning, visually, which we see throughout the Bible. And I'm just saying one of them, one of them has that effect. God made them. He spoke them into existence. This is the God, the eternal one, the infinite one, the incomprehensible one who's revealed himself and made himself known. This God meets with his people. This is an awesome scene. Heaven touches earth. God manifests and locates his glory on a mountain peak. The omnipresent God, the God who is overall everywhere. There is nowhere you can go to hide from God. 
locates himself, manifests himself here on this mountain peak in Arabia, I am convinced. As human beings, we have five senses. This is how we relate to the world around us. God has made us in this way. This is how he has designed us. We have these five senses. This is how we determine the nature, purpose, and function of things in the created world. And a lot of the history of Western philosophy is trying to relate reason to these senses and and, and the information that we take in from these senses and, and how we reason in our own minds. God has made us this way as we relate to the world around us. And here we find God overloading the senses. That's what he does. He overloads the senses of millions of people at the same time. Simultaneously. Visually and audibly, this is sheer grandeur and might before the people. This is a moment of wonder and awe. They are in the middle of the wilderness. These people have been brought out into the middle of nowhere. They're not in a great city. They're not near a great well-known temple of the ancient world. There has been no time spent among men building this place where the gods would show up. They're in the middle of nowhere. At a mountain in the wilderness. And here, this is the place of grandeur and might. This is the place of untold glories and mysteries. This is the place of sense overload. The God of the universe here meets with his people. Thunder, lightning, and a thick cloud on the mountain. Some of the greatest spectacles that creation has to offer. They hear thunders. It's plural. Not just thunder, but they hear thunders, multiple smashing sounds booming from heaven like a symphony of rage, like a symphonic raging storm. Not that God is raging against his people, but you can imagine a raging storm in the middle of a hurricane. This is the sort of thing we get with these thunders booming and smashing, showing the glory of God to these earthlings. They see lightnings or lightning flashes all around. And the thick cloud on top of the mountain helps to focus their attention to God's meeting place. It is the place where this is happening, where the thick cloud is. But someone might read this and be tempted to think that the people are just experiencing something natural. Uh, the people, and you get this sort of thing. It's, it's crazy. You get this sort of thing from people. I guess it's an apologetic thing, or, or for some, it's just sort of an explaining away. They, they sort of accept the kernel historically, but they're trying to figure out, you know, what really happened in their naturalistic worldview. And so trying to understand how it all happened. And so they must have come up on a, a volcanic eruption. There's some sort of storm happening, and, and this volcanic eruption is observed in this way. And in the retelling, over time, it gets sort of accentuated and it becomes this great theophany, this great appearance of God. Some have tried to see this in merely natural 
terms. And the problem with that view, well, there are many problems with that view, but the immediate problem with that view is, that, is this, this whole trumpet thing. Right? We're not just talking about natural things like, uh, like lightning and thunder and, and, a, and a cloud. We're also talking about things that don't just spring. <coughs> excuse me, they don't just spring up out of nature. What do we make of this whole trumpet thing? The people hear a very loud trumpet blast. This is not the sound of nature. This is distinct. This is the sound of a trumpet, like the people would use, calling the people to war, or like was used to call the people up as Moses brings them forward. As they were on the third day able to approach the mountain. This is not the sound of nature. This is the sound of a mind. And not that a mind creates this sound. But that it it is the mind behind the trumpet. There's something here that's not just natural phenomenon happening. This is the sound we can understand. Of angelic hosts announcing the arrival of the king. This is no mere natural phenomenon. This is the hosts of heaven announcing, here comes the king with this blast of a trumpet. The response of the people to all of this raging storm, cloud, thick cloud on the mountain, The sound of the trumpet, the response of the people to all of this is not surprising. They tremble in fear. And I would even go so far as to say, down to the man, down to the person. Can you imagine two to two and a half million people simultaneously trembling? Collectively, individually, simultaneously. This is an incredible scene, the likes of which they've never experienced. And the awesomeness of this for the people is overwhelming. But what we find here is that it's not just the people who are trembling. The mountain is trembling as well. Really, there's nothing more you could say to, to show the glory of this moment, to show the awesomeness of this moment. The people are trembling and the mountain is shaking. The, the whole mountain is shaking as it is smoking and thundering and lightning. Being in a state of trembling, Moses brings the people out to the foot of the mountain to meet God, verse 17. And it is there that they see more clearly what is happening on the mountain. So look at verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This is a shaking, burning mountain consumed with thick smoke. The Lord has manifested his presence with fire. And you know, I, I couldn't help but to, but to think about Genesis 15 as you go through this. Uh, the, the people would, I think, have thought of this as this story has been passed down. And as later readers of Exodus who are aware through reading Genesis of what God did with Abraham. We read this in Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had gone down... So this is when the Lord forges that covenant with Abraham. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot. 
and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And so I think here it's connecting the two. What happened with Abram there is happening now with all of Abraham's offspring, these descendants whom God promised him. And we see this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, when Moses meets God. He's out tending Jethro's flock and he's there at the mountain. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, you think of a, a fire, you think of the purifying nature of fire, but also this is something that pushes you back. It is also something powerful, especially if we see a blazing fire. This is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. And we see it with Abraham. We saw it with Moses. And now we see it with two plus million people gathered around this mountain. Then we read in verses 19 to 20 that the people experience, that the people experience Moses actually communicating with God. Uh, this is incredible. They're standing there and they see all of these natural phenomena and phenomena that are not natural. And then they begin to literally see God whom they can't see. He's enveloped with this thick cloud and this smoke. They begin to actually hear the God of the universe speak to Moses. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. It's an amazing scene. The people are trembling and the mountain is going crazy. And then God speaks to Moses and the people hear it. This is utterly overwhelming. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21 tells us that Moses was also trembling. So yes, the whole people are trembling, but also Moses. And you can imagine, he's got to go up there. He gets to go up there, yes, we understand that. But he's also got to go up there. Into all of that. Hebrews 12, verse 21, indeed, so terrifying. Let me just stop there for a second. There are a few things that we've encountered in life that we would call terrifying. That's just not a word that we use very often. And if we do use it, we tend to use it like we were talking about earlier with awesome and perfect. We're just not using it the right way. Terrifying is a very strong word. It's, it's just hard to find a stronger word for fearfulness. It's, it's hard to find a stronger word for that sense of fear that overtakes a person when you feel absolutely small and vulnerable as though you could be utterly just washed away. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us about Moses. Moses himself, we see that Moses goes up into this raging mountain and I'm sure the people are wondering, what in the world is he doing? The people would have seen clearly, they would have understood clearly at this point, the intimate relationship that Moses had with the Lord. No one else is spoken to directly here at this stage. It's, it's the Lord, Yahweh, speaking to Moses himself. 
And it is the Lord who invites Moses up to come to him. And they, they watch Moses, 80-year-old Moses, going up the mountain to meet God. This would have highlighted for the people definitively, most definitively, that Moses was the mediator. Remember verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. So we know that part of what the Lord is doing in this moment is he's affirming Moses. He's affirming Moses' leadership. And we see that with Christ in the New Testament, the way that the Father speaks at Christ's baptism. We see it on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see it through the miracles that God does through Christ, the God-man. Christ is the mediator, as we talked about last week. And Moses is a picture of the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. The one man, the one man who went to the cross and bore the wrath of God. Jesus stepped in. Think about this. Think about all the the power and the glory and the splendor here. Now imagine all of this turned towards wrath. All of this glory, all of this might turn towards one aim, and that is judgment. That's the cross. It is as though Christ stood at the foot of this mountain, and the mountain fell over on top of him. Christ took God's glorious, holy wrath as our great mediator. So what are we to make of all of this? What are some implications for us just as we process this awesome scene? Well, let me just give you several here. So first, this scene leads us to meditate on the true meaning of words like glory. Bible words, right? We've got a lot of Bible words that we just throw around. Bible words that we really don't have anything to hang on. Uh, This scene helps us put lots of substance into words like glory. And words like awe and worship and power. It it helps us to understand who God is. Changes the way we read the Bible. A scene like this shows God's control over creation. God can do with creation as he pleases. And we see that here with the thunderings and the lightning flashes. We see that here with the shaking of the mountain. That the Lord is God over all creation. And I think for us, as we've said before, that gives us, that encourages us to trust the Lord. With all the ways we are situated in his creation, right? All of the stressful ways and anxiety-ridden ways and all of the uncertain ways and unpredictable ways that we are situated in this, his creation. He's over all of it. He is sovereign over every speck of dust, every mountain, every bit of wind, every cloud. He is sovereign over every single piece of matter that we encounter every day in our lives. A scene like this helps us not to treat God in a casual way. And it really, I think that needs to be emphasized. You know, we can, cre- we can take God casually. We can approach God casually. God is not merely your buddy. 
He's not some silly co-pilot for your life. That's not God. That's not this God. That's not the biblical God. That's some silly, trivial creation of our own imagination in this superficial culture that we live in. He's not some little co-pilot there patting us on the back from the seat over. This is the Lord of glory. This is God, the God of the universe. A scene like this, finally, prepares us for the second coming of Christ. Uh, This will happen again. This kind of scene will happen again globally. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 12. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Oh, he's coming back. He's coming back. He will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting, listen to this, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. To many who play with Christ, he will be utterly unrecognizable on that day. Just totally something radically different than how they envisioned him. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed, Paul says. On that day... Vengeance will either be inflicted on you or you will marvel in joy at Christ. You will marvel in joy at his glory. Not in trembling, not in fear, but in running to him with absolute amazement and reverence, of course, but running to him as the Savior who has come to take us home. Not so. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, not so. This is the end for you. This is where it's all headed. This is where all the lust of the flesh is headed. This is where all the pride of life is headed. This is where all the love of riches and the love of praise is headed towards this. This glorious, powerful scene of Christ's return. So we see the awesome scene, verses 16 to 20, and now we come to the alarming stipulations. Look at verses 21 to 25. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. As the Lord just doesn't even respond to his, Moses, what Moses has to say. He just keeps going. Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is very similar to what we looked at last week. The flashing word here is 
holiness. That's, that's the big word that we're meant to get out of this set of verses is holiness. God's holiness. This is the big idea. Moses goes up. And at this point, he goes up all alone. The people must stay down the mountain, at the foot of the mountain, back from the mountain. And here we see that with God's holiness comes God's warning. We see that God's holiness is accompanied by his grace and his mercy. Do you see that? Do you see that here? Well, we're, we're talking about holiness that is bent towards love for that which is not holy. This is incredible. This is God. He is that holy. He defines holy. And that holiness leans towards us in love. And so we see here that the holiness comes with the warning. The people are to stay back. And any priest who is to come before God at any point moving forward is to make sure to properly consecrate himself. And as we talked about last week, It does not have to do with clean clothes or boundary markers. All of this uh, language of holiness has to do with the people understanding who God is. They cannot approach God any old way. They cannot treat God like the Egyptians would have treated their gods. They cannot treat God like a superhero in the sky. They have to approach God precisely in the way that he calls them to, with the mindset that he calls them to, recognizing who he is as he has revealed himself. They have to understand who God is and who they are. It has to do with preparing the heart for the weightiness of meeting with God. God is holy. He is set apart. He is perfect. He is pure. And human beings are not. How many sins have we even committed since the beginning of this sermon? All of us. The the thoughts that we entertain. The the feelings that we we generate in our hearts and and, and that we, we ride out. The ways in which we neglect God's word or we care little for our neighbor. The ways that we are just entirely bent often on self. We are not. God is set apart. And human beings are not holy. Even without sin. So even in the Garden of Eden, consider this. God is the infinite creator. And we are finite creatures made of dust. Right? So even before sin entered the world, you have this radical distinction. You have this radical setting apart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The distinction that exists between God and his creatures. But with sin, God is the God of holy justice. And we are those deserving condemnation. So holiness, this is what the people must never lose sight of. So the Lord tells Moses that there are to be no curious onlookers. The same problem was there that there is today. You can imagine, not just kids. We know kids do that. But I'm not just talking about kids. It's not talking about kids here. Adults who might would be around the tabernacle and be like, I just want to go in there. 
I just want to go see. And you can imagine, I mean, for the bravest of the bunch, after the trembling, although the trembling probably continues, but after that initial trembling, perhaps, you know, some, maybe some of those who fought on the very front lines of Joshua's army are thinking, I'd really like to go up there and get a peek at this. I would really like to see what is happening. There are to be no curious onlookers and no unconsecrated priests. The consequence for that is death. That's what the Lord says. Perishing. The Lord breaking out against them. If they break through, God will break out in his wrath against them. And it is at this point that we get this interesting comment from Moses. He seems to argue with the Lord. we, We thought we were past that. But he seems to do it again here. Verse 23. The answer really is something like, yes, sir. Right? Yes, God. But we get here in the middle of all of this. It really is shocking. In the middle of all of this, he has something, he has anything to say. Verse 23. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. Well, uh, commentators debate over what Moses is getting at here, why he says this, what's going on. But it seems to me that Moses here appears to be naive. Oh, God, that's already been taken care of. We already set up those boundary markers down there at the foot of the mountain. You've already said that, and we've done what's needed. Check. No further action required. You can move on now, God. Is sort of, I think, what's going on here. But that's, that's not how God sees it. That, that thing is sorted. As they would often say in Scotland, sorted. That thing is not sorted. Moses thinks it's sorted. Everything's been taken care of. Uh, the, the people are fine. They're not going to come up here. That's not the way God sees it. The gravity of the offense demands reiteration. This is grace. This is grace here. This is God's grace. God could just say it one time. I'm done. I say it one time and that's it. But God reiterates. And you know, every, that's God's grace to us. Every time we pick up our Bibles, we read it again. How many, times does God, how many times does God say these things to us? We presume on God's patience, God's long-suffering, God's grace, when we just keep doing it. That is folly. It is a presumption on God's grace and it is inviting God's judgment in discipline to use the language of 1 Corinthians 11. So the gravity of the offense demands reiteration and specification. It demands Moses making another trip down the mountain to inform the people of these alarming stipulations. If they try to break through, God himself will strike them. And we see this with Uzzah. In 2 Samuel 6, verses 7 to 8, I won't go into all of that, but they're carrying the ark and he reaches out and touches to grab the ark as it is coming off the side there to fall down and he touches it and God strikes him dead. Or Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, they offer strange fire to the Lord and God literally zaps them dead. He consumes them with fire. He torches them. So God reiterates his instructions to Moses, telling him that only Aaron can come up with him. And Moses obeys, as we read in verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So as we finish up this morning, 
as we think about this distance in the old covenant, our minds, I think, are drawn to three things as we consider that we are in the new covenant. Our minds are drawn to three things. As we think about this distance, uh, this lack of proximity of the people as they are there at the bottom of the mountain, they can't go up there. And they couldn't even gather up around the foot of the mountain until the third day. Our mind goes to three things. Christ, the Spirit, and heaven. So first, Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I hope that looking at a passage like this creates so much more awe in us of the incarnation. Think about that for a moment. The glory of Christmas, the glory of the incarnation, the glory of the fact that this God, this God became man and dwelt among us and was among us as a baby was among us as a a fetus, a developing baby in the womb. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This God came to us in Christ. So we think of Christ and His incarnation. We also think of the Spirit. As we think about the proximity that we have in the new covenant, in in contrast, in comparison to the old covenant, we think of the Spirit and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know? This is him writing to Christians. And listen to this. This is him writing to a pretty messed up bunch of Christians. I mean, these guys aren't doing it right. This is not a healthy church, Corinth. This is, this is not a place where you know, great things are happening on the whole. Some are, but this is a place that is just riddled with all sorts of divisions and sexual immorality is happening, a lack of church discipline, leaven, a little leaven is leavening the whole lump. They're suing one another. I mean, there's just a lot of bad things going on in Corinth. And to these people in the new covenant, in Christ, Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Take this picture at Sinai, just shrink it down and just put it on the inside. That's incredible. That's mind-blowing. If that doesn't blow your mind, I have no idea what blows your mind. I don't think anything that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And then heaven. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That's what's coming. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's what we have to look forward to in heaven. So we have Christ who has come in the incarnation At this stage in redemptive history, we look back on that event. That has happened. That hasn't happened at Sinai. That will not happen for 1,500 years. But we look back on that. We are in the having already happened state of the incarnation. And we have the Spirit. And we have eternal life already within us. And we look forward to this heaven. And yet, listen to this. And yet, 
in all of that proximity, in all of that access, in all of those glorious new covenant realities. Hear the words at the end of Hebrews 12, verse 28, which Adam read to us earlier. For those who have entered by the new covenant, who have come to Mount Zion, listen to these words, any among us this morning who treats God casually, any among us this morning who wrongly believes that the new covenant access to God somehow warrants or, or permits this sort of flippant attitude towards God and his holiness. This is where the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 28 ends after discussing our access and new covenant belonging. He says, therefore, what's the takeaway? Just hang out with God. No. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. But you know what that means? That means we can offer to God a whole lot of unacceptable worship. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship, and here it is, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Guess what? He's still a consuming fire. He was a consuming fire at Sinai. He's a consuming fire now. This is our God. Let this recalibrate the way you approach him, the way you see sin, the way we pray, the way we read scripture, and the way we talk of God to others. This is our God. We approach him with much gratitude, with reverence, and with all, for he is a consuming fire. He is awesome. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word, what you have revealed to us this day. Lord, we thank you for this amazing scene at Sinai. And Lord, it's just hard for us to get it. It's hard for us to understand it. We just, we can't even imagine experiencing this. And Lord, we are just even more amazed to think that this scene, as it were, has come to dwell within us, that we approach you, God, through Christ, who by his Spirit poured out on the church. We approach you as Spirit-indwelt children of God. Lord, how amazing this is. And Lord, I pray that it will blow our minds, and I pray that it will encourage us to root out sin wherever it may be found, that it will encourage us to deny self at all costs, that it will encourage us to walk unto Christ, to live unto Christ, and not to latch our hearts on to all the idols that this world has to offer. Father, be gracious to us as you already have been. We pray for your mercy, and we thank you for your glory. Would we see you as holy, and would we see these things now as we come to the Lord's Supper? In Jesus' name. Amen.